for me, when we're talking about diversity as it pertains to the organizations, the schools, and the workplace within VetMed, within these spaces, you're creating an environment for people belonging to different group identities. You're creating spaces where they're welcomed, they're protected, and more importantly, they're respected. That is Justice Birdsong. And this is the Vin Foundation's Veterinary Pulse podcast. I'm Jordan Benshia, Executive Director of the Vin Foundation. Join me and our co-host and Vin Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics and share stories. Stories that connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible through individual donations to the VIN Foundation. Thank you. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Welcome, Justice. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And where are you speaking to me from? Um, I am currently on the island of St. Kitts and Nevis. I'm currently in quarantine in my dorm uh, at Ross University. Uh, uh, how how long do you have to sit that out? Um, so this is my first day. We just flew in yesterday, so 14 days total. Oh, gosh. Um, what, what are you going to do to keep yourself entertained? Um, lots of studying because we still have classes during this and um, some labs to prepare for um, as soon as we get out. So lots and lots of studying. Okay, so tell me where you're at in in school at Ross. What semester? Um, I am a fifth semester. We're a few weeks from closing our fifth semester. Um, I think that's equivalent to like a third year in like the normal four year programs because Ross okay. is accelerated. So like the start of third year or the end of third year or the start. The start. The start. Because okay. we have to get to seven. So I have two more after this, two more semesters and then clinical start. Okay. And do you, when do clinicals start for you? Um, December of next year. Well, it's still 2021, but December coming up. So soon, pretty soon. Okay. And I guess I, I uh, jumped ahead a little bit because I do, I want to hear how you got there, like where you were born and raised and um, how you made your way there in the first place. Um, so I am originally from Kansas City, Missouri, born and raised. Um, and then I went to the University of Missouri, Columbia, Mizzou for um, undergrad. Um, and I really didn't know that vet med was going to kind of be the path for me until probably my senior year of high school. Um, you know, I was getting close to that date where um, I was going to graduate and have to figure out, okay, we got this diploma. Now what? I knew I wanted to go to college because, you know, I wanted that, you know, upper education, but didn't know what. So I was starting to panic a little bit, talking to my mom, <laughs> talking to my advisors. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. Like, what can I do? Like, and my mom brought up, she was like, you love animals. Like you've had all kinds of animals all your life. Why don't you be a vet? And I sat and thought about it and I was like, okay, so what does this look like? And I started to kind of, kind of research it. Um, and at the same time, I got lucky because my high school was starting this program for um, people in the STEM field that during your high school, your your senior year of high school, you could go and extern in between your class times. Um, and so I was able to join this program. It was the Northland CAPS program, but I'm not quite sure what the CAPS stood for anymore. <laughs> that was a long time ago. 
Um, so I uh, interviewed, applied and interviewed for this program, um, got accepted. And so in the mornings I was going to um, an extern, an internship that they helped me get um, at a local veterinary clinic. So I would do, I think it was two hours in the morning at this veterinary clinic um, and then go drive to school and go about my normal school day. So that was really awesome. And they really helped me get a lot of my shadowing and interning hours um, that I used to apply to undergrad and to log for vet school applications some years prior or some years after, sorry. That does sound like kind of like long days, although I guess it's a good preparation for long days in vet school, like two hours before your school day starts. Um, no, they actually, it was during school, but I wasn't scheduled for classes during those two hours. Like oh. this internship counted as credits towards my diploma. Oh, nice. Yeah. But it was long days. Cause even after school, I had to go <laughs> to one of my two jobs at the time I was working at um, a kennel um, at the same vet that I was interning for because they ended up hiring me in their kennels. Um, and then I also worked um, at a children's daycare center that's like a before and after at one of the elementary schools so oh, wow. very very used to being busy yeah well okay so at this point of your journey um to our pre-vet listeners and and uh, those considering going into the profession what would you recommend like do you have any advice for people thinking about it or people who already know they want to be a vet like what they should do um, the best advice I can give is honestly start early and any connections you can make, try. Um, start going into local veterinary clinics near you and ask to intern because that's literally all I did was had my resume ready. Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, do you have any opportunities for me, internship, externship, um, even just starting out in the kennel, just getting that beginning exposure to like the dogs and cats boarding, the daycare that type of thing. Um, but just starting as early as possible. Um, you know, if my mom could have planted in my head to be a veterinarian, maybe a year or two prior, that would have been great to start early, <laughs> not my senior year. But it's they really, really care a lot about the hours of hands-on experience because yeah, you're gonna learn it all, you know, when you're sitting in the classrooms and reading the books, um, but there really is nothing like that hands-on learning. And you're gonna be able to make connections later. Yeah, the connections are, yeah, extremely important. I mean, those are the, some of the people who are going to write your letters of recommendation to, to, to apply in the first place. I, I would add two things um, that you can start late too, um, but I, I, I started early while also starting late because I'm a second career veterinarian and I, uh, I started getting experience like five years before I applied. So yeah, that was pretty early in terms of like the grand scheme of things. Um, I was, I was doing part-time jobs. And so I would do some part-time jobs in the area that I studied for in undergrad, which was journalism. And then I would do some part-time jobs, like the ones you just mentioned, like just getting experience at a clinic or a shelter and meeting people and getting connections. Um, and the other thing I would add is um, the VIN Foundation resource. I want to be a veterinarian. Um, I think that that is really helpful for anybody at this stage of the process. Okay, so you now you're at Ross. You are 
fifth semester and you start clinics later this year, do you have any idea where you will be when rotations start or is that, is that still further down the line? Um, so next semester, we're actually gonna start having conversations um, about clinical placement um, and kind of looking at their requirements. Um, so I'm really hoping to put Mizzou as my number one choice. I really, okay. really want to go back. Um, during undergrad, I got the opportunity to actually work um, at their veterinary teaching hospital. And so um, I've already made a lot of connections with some of the doctors, the technicians, the residents. Um, I worked in the ICU specifically. Um, and so I really do have that strong um, interest in emergency and critical care. So okay. being able to kind of go back there, I feel like would help me in tremendously. Yeah. I mean, does that like, does that matter for how you're placed? Like if you already, you know, have experience somewhere, does that help your chances or I don't know. I don't really know how that works. Um, they kind of look at a mixture of everything. GPA of course is definitely one of them. Um, if you've had any failures in your classes, um, why you want to go to those schools. So is it because you have some type of specialty you're looking into? Or are you just trying to go be back closer to home? Um, mm -hmm. And they do consider, you know, some of the personal aspects. So it's okay. kind of a combination of everything. You know, a lot of conversations have to happen in negotiations. So, but Mizzou, I think is definitely going to be my number one. And so, okay. So now you have, you have experience at two veterinary hospitals, two school. Well, Ross doesn't have a hospital, but two schools. and. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what, uh, like, what you have learned about the culture of veterinary medicine. Uh, well, two big things. <laughs> if I had to sum it up in two words, exhausting, um, and unfortunately, at times, a bit insensitive. Um, exhausting because of the, what do they call it, emotional fatigue, compassion fatigue. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of just the misinformation that's out there about our field, what we do, why what we do what we do, and just the care for your animals in general. Um, and I think a big part of that, um, you know, good old Dr. Google and social media, <laughs> everybody thinks that they can treat their pets from home. Um, and so you really get put in some tough, tough situations, you're given tough cases. And insensitive, I would say, because I've been around certain veterinarians and techs that while they're frustrated with, with what the case may be, they're not really looking at the bigger picture. And I've heard things like, oh, don't have a dog if you don't have the money to take care of it. Um, well, I get where you're coming from, but at the same time, I think it's always important to just be cognizant of everybody's different socioeconomic statuses, different mm -hmm. levels of education, um, and that people have different views on you know, human-animal interrelationships human and animal relationships and that interaction between them. There's a different value placed um, on that depending on, you know, where you are, cultural beliefs, backgrounds. So, I mean, while we would like everybody to, you know, have ample amounts of money to just throw at their pets, you know, two, three thousand plus dollars for surgeries, that's just not the case. And while it may be frustrating, I get it. It's just not the reality that we're living in. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought up the word background. I, I am curious how your background has informed your understanding of the culture of veterinary medicine and specifically um, that you have parents of different races and how that might give you a broader understanding of 
what, um, you know, what that means in terms of access to veterinary care and, and veterinary care in general. Um, so yeah, so I am of mixed race. Um, my mother is white and my father is actually mixed race as well. So he is black and white. Um, being of mixed race, maybe I experience, I guess, other people differently than maybe those who are of one race because I feel like I can be more empathetic. Um, I've seen all sides really, especially growing up in like the diverse area that I came from where I had friends of all backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses. Mm-hmm. Well, I was able to be a little bit more empathetic with those who you know had more money than me, less money than me, different problems than me, problems from being a different race. I don't know. I feel like when you're growing up in a diverse environment, it's a great opportunity to just kind of be educated and be more empathetic and sympathetic to the problems going on outside of you and around you. As far as veterinary care, I'm going to be honest. Where I came from, veterinary care was not really something that was brought up often. I mean, my dad used to um, breed dogs. And so he he's a very intelligent man. He's He's very good at um, teaching himself all different types of things, like teaching himself to work on cars. Um, So when he was breeding dogs, he was teaching himself all about, you know, the pedigrees, how to care for the dogs, the food, Um, very intelligent. So a lot of my early interest in dog care did come from him. So that was really kind of my only exposure to veterinary care. It's not really something that's talked about, I don't feel, in black and brown communities. It's not something that's really affordable. You don't really see a lot of vet clinics in black and brown communities. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I, my brother-in-law is mixed race and he describes his experience. I mean, he's not in veterinary medicine, but he describes his experience similar to yours where um, it, you know, you, you can, you can kind of like empathize with more people because you you look like more people and i i um i also like i also wonder how that informs your view and definition of diversity in veterinary medicine and you know how that's important and why that's important so for me when we're talking about diversity as it pertains to Um, you know, the organizations, the schools, and the workplace within vet med, to me, that really means within these spaces, you're creating an environment for people belonging to different group identities. You're creating spaces where they're welcomed, they're protected, and more importantly, they're respected, because I think that's the most important part. You might not be knowledgeable about them or the group they identify with, you might not understand it, you might not even agree with it, but you at least should be respectful of it. Um, And when we're talking about vet med and having conversations of diversity, it should not come from a place where it's for a quota or it's for public appearances, I guess. You know, you're really caring about these people um, and respecting them and giving them an equal opportunity 
I'm not doing it just to tolerate them or endure them, I should say. So to me, if you're going to have a diverse environment, like a diverse school, a diverse workplace, you need to ensure that you're making efforts so that everybody has an equal opportunity. Everybody has a seat at the table. Um, everybody feels heard. Everybody feels protected, especially when you know tough scenarios arise, when you have clients that may be racist, when you have occurrences like what's going on right now, like the George Floyd case um, is currently being reheard. Um, all the Black Lives Matter movements, all the um, increased uh, racist incidents among Asian Americans. It's, it's really important that you're creating an environment where they feel heard, where they feel protected. Um, they need those safe spaces um, and they need that respect, um, especially in a field like this where the suicide rate is so high. Just be that extra helping hand to where, hey, we hear you, we see you. Do you need anything? Yeah, that that I mean, uh, so much of what you just said and the last part, especially, do you need anything? And we we just spoke with um, Serena earlier this week about um, how diversity you can't have diversity without inclusion and you can't have inclusion without diversity. And what you said, like it can't just be to fill a quota. It can't just be for numbers or a bar graph like it, it has to be accompanied by do you need anything? And, and also what you were just saying, like, how can we make this a safe space for you? How can we make this a protected space for you? And like, how can we make sure that everybody feels like they belong? Exactly. Um, it's something I care about deeply. If you could tell the passion in my voice there. Um, I, I just, I, at the, like the more, you know, the more I learn about our profession, the more important it becomes to me because, you know, when I was talking about earlier how I, I started late, um, I, when I decided that I wanted to shadow uh, somebody at a veterinary clinic, I asked my parents if they knew any friends who were veterinarians and my dad knew one and he asked if I could shadow and that was that. And I did not realize the privilege that went into that. And, and I also didn't realize that when I walked into that clinic, everybody was white. It didn't, it didn't strike me as um, homogenous. It didn't strike me as like something was off about that. I was just like, oh, this is like, everybody looks like how, like what I look like here. And that, that, that wasn't even an active thought that was like in my subconscious. And now that I see like they're like the profession is 95, 96% white. It's, that's not sustainable. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not good for, for one thing, but it's also not sustainable. And like the profession won't survive if it doesn't become more diverse. And um, that will take a lot of work and it's also work that's worth it. Um, so, so yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, you also mentioned the suicide rate and, um, yeah, I mean, another huge problem in our profession is, um, how, how much we struggle with our mental health. 
Um, can you just say a little bit more what you think about that? Uh, honestly, it's you can't just target one thing or a few things for everybody um, who is struggling with their mental health in this field, who um, is struggling with suicidal thoughts or who did commit suicide. It's very multifactorial. Um, it's personal. It's the workplace. It's the workload. It's the fatigue, um, the imposter syndrome. It's it's very multifactorial and it's, it's really hard to just pin it to, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, oh, it's this. It's, I think that's also why it's so hard to try and fix the problem is because we really can't identify what the problem is for everybody, but we can kind of make general assertions um, based on our own experiences. But it's, it's definitely gonna be a battle. And, I think just continuing the awareness that we're continuing to bring about it, continuing the conversations, continuing the support network and letting people know, hey, we're all in this together. If you need help, seek help. If you need help, if you need to talk, hey, I'm one of those people. Um, just continuing that education and continuing the conversation is very, very important. Um, and that's really just gonna be one of the leading ways that we try and overcome this. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head again. Um, it's, it's one of those things that you can't, you can't fix. You can't point at one cause because there isn't one cause. There's not, there's not a, um, a simple solution, obviously. And it's, it's also so much of what we don't know about people, what, what they might have, um, struggled with growing up, if they have childhood trauma, if they have, uh, if they have a bad relationship at home, if there is um, emotional or physical or substance abuse or grief or loss about, um, you know, maybe a colleague who just committed suicide. Like there are so many things at play. And I, I mean, I think, I think one of the most important things we can do is um, check in on each other and not just not just like ask how you're doing, but really ask how you're doing. Absolutely. And and also you mentioned at the end of what you said, like, you know, talk to people and reach out for help. And I I have to mention the Vin Foundation resource, Vets for Vets and there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's also support for support for um, for veterinary staff, like assistants and nurses and technicians. Um, it's, it's something that personally helped me last year when I was going through um, a very deep valley. And it's, it's peer to peer support for free, confidential support for anything, like any of the issues that you and I just mentioned, um, like compassion fatigue, like stress at work or anxiety or depression or things going on at home. Um, and that is, that's what the Vin Foundation is here to do is to help people. Um, and so I just wanted to let listeners know. Um, 
No, the, these these type of resources are absolutely important and they need to be promoted as much as possible. Like they are needed now more than ever. Um, do you, have you seen a change in, like since you've been involved um, from before you started at Ross, since you've been involved at the Missouri Hospital, like have you seen a change in the profession or in either of those schools? Um, with regards to mental health? I'm going to be completely honest and say that I really didn't get into just the depths of this career and the issues with it until I probably got here to Ross because mm -hmm. that's when I really started to have more just kind of raw conversations with veterinarians, with minority veterinarians, um, taking the veterinary professional class here that we do and just really kind of getting to the cold hard facts of what does this profession actually look like? What does it actually cost? What, you know, what are the downsides and disadvantages of this profession? Um, so I really wasn't awoken to a lot of this until I got here. Um, and I think that's kind of what made me start to get so involved and so proactive with things and the different organizations I joined. So how oh, tell me. Excuse me? I was going to say, tell me about those organizations you joined, but I interrupted you, so. No, um, I'm actually SADMA secretary. Um, I'm actually finishing out my year term as SADMA secretary. Um, I joined the diversity task force here at Ross, um, and I also was one of the charter members, um, and I'm also the vice president of the student chapter we started here of the National Association for Black Veterinarians. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's, uh, it also sounds like your plate is very full. It's very full, but I don't know. It brings me joy just to have something else other to, something else to do other than school. Um, it's a nice distraction. Um, and it's also, I was always taught to, you know, leave something, leave a place better than how you found it. Um, so this is kind of me being proactive and trying to get the ball rolling with, you know, being a part of the change, um, being a part of the history, you know? Um, so I don't mind it. I mean, it does get stressful at times um, and it does take away from my studies at times, unfortunately, but I don't want to leave this school with any regrets. I don't, and I don't want to leave this school with, I guess, just the, just the book work, just the lectures, you know, just the initial education. I want to say that I got more out of my experience here. Yeah, yeah, I was I was heavily involved with SADMA um, when I was at Illinois. And um, one of my mentors gave me a piece of advice that stuck with me. She said, you're not gonna remember the nights you stayed up till two or three studying, you know, parasitology or toxicology you are going to remember the relationships and the connections you made and Absolutely. and like that's what you're going to carry with you after you graduate not you know not this list of 10 things that you memorized and forgot and absolutely the orgs and the relationships and just what i've been able to be a part of is honestly just been my favorite part of that school because me joining these orgs was really me kind of stepping out of my comfort zone um, and pushing myself to do more and pushing myself to speak more. And so it's honestly been my favorite part of this experience. So that's, that's really cool. 
Um, also, I'm biased because I feel the exact same way. So, <laughs> of course, I think it's cool. Um, I, I am also wondering, well, I, I got two questions. Um, I'm wondering if you have like, it's one, one question is the same that I asked earlier. Um, but with a different, uh, with a different tint on it, because you said, you know, you didn't really fully understand these issues about the profession until you got to school. And so it's the same question. Like, what would you tell pre-vets or people applying? Um, since like, you know, what do you know now that you wish you would have known then about mental health and diversity and like the issues that you're finding important being involved in these organizations? Um, well, two things for the pre-vet people, I would really, really try and encourage them to find a mentor of sorts if they can. I know that's you know not always easy for everybody, depending on their standing and who they know and um, really find a mentor and start asking the hard hitting questions, um, start researching, you know, everything is online nowadays. Um, reach out to vet students. Um, if you follow some on social media, I know a lot of vet students are, um, it's becoming a more popular thing to have kind of a social media page through your journey out throughout vet school. If you follow any of them, DM them, because more often than not, they're more than happy to kind of share their experiences and guide you through. Um, but the other thing for current veterinarians and current vet students, um, I think it's important that they try and start educating against this earlier. Because personally, when I was in like pre-vet meetings um, and even working at the hospital, these weren't really conversations that were being had. You know, everybody was mm. hyper-focused on applying, getting the application done. You know, we were working, we were getting work done. We're, so excited to be hands-on and touching the dog, but you know, these raw conversations weren't really happening. And I think it's very important that the education um, start occurring earlier, earlier on. Yeah, and we'll we'll put your social media handles in the episode notes um, <laughs> and I'll volunteer you to be DM'd. Oh, I'm fine with that. Just I'm boring and I don't have a vet page. There's nothing <laughs> for me to take pictures. And you know, when I'm actually, in these labs and like actually working, I'm not I'm not worried about taking pictures. So I really don't remember. So just my boring old personal page, but I'm always willing to give advice. Um, and we've even been working on doing some talks and mentoring um, as an org, as part of NABV. So always, always open to answer questions. I am curious if you have a favorite quote. Um, I do actually. So during undergrad and one of my literature classes, I was introduced to James Baldwin because he wasn't really someone talked about. Oh, I love that guy. I love hearing him talk and just the power behind his like delivery and his speeches and that debate that he did. I am fascinated with him. But he said, you have to decide who you are and force the world to deal with you, not just the idea of you. Um, and that really resonated with me in two ways. Um, one, again, from being of mixed race, growing up, I constantly felt like I was being othered. Nobody really knew kind of where to place me, um, on what side of my race, um, and I've even been mistaken for other races. Um, I've had some pretty insensitive 
things said to me because of my race or assumptions about my race. So just constantly being othered and finally having to grow up and take a stand and correct people and educate people. Um, to basically address me correctly um, to kind of stop the ignorance, um, stop the prejudices, stop the assumptions. Um, and then the other thing was, I was also growing up kind of more of a quieter child. You know, the good student did what I was told to, got the A's. Um, a little bit shyer, definitely didn't do things like this, like talk on a podcast or join the orgs that I have. Um, so I've definitely grown a lot. And that was just by me kind of taking a stand and making efforts to push myself and try to grow and kind of put myself in these more uncomfortable positions um, because I didn't want to be that shy, quiet person forever. You know, I have a personality. I wanted to start sharing my thoughts and having my voice heard. And so, yeah, I mean, this is me. And now the world is being forced to reckon with me <laughs> and not just tolerate me. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I am going to share one of my favorite Baldwin quotes. Um, and I... I don't have this memorized. I admit to looking it up right now, but <laughs> I, I go to it often. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Ooh, that's a good one. That's I, definitely a good one. Yeah. I just, I love that one so much. Um, I just love hearing him talk. The way he viewed the world was just incredible. Well, I read a I read an article about him that um, the the author theorized that he he could see the world so clearly and come up with quotes like like that. Or if you look up James Baldwin quotes, like it's it's like somebody seeing the world through a crystal ball mm -hmm. and. Like the theory was that he could see it that way, the it being the world um, and particularly the American culture because he didn't fit into any group. Absolutely. Like he was a black gay man when both of those things were- Heavily hated. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I mean- like I, I kind of touched on that earlier, when you're put into different group identities and different minority groups and you're constantly othered, um, to me, it just seems like you become more tolerant. You view things differently. You're more accepting of other people who are othered, who are in different groups than you. So again, it's just you either live the experience and you become more tolerant or you take action to educate yourself and become more tolerant yourself. Learn to kind of outgrow maybe some of the negative misperceptions that you have, misconceptions. Um, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I lost count of the times I've said, I totally agree with you now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just preach. Um, well, if you, if you have any one thing, or it doesn't have to be one, it can be it can be more, but if you have anything to leave the audience with, um, what would that be? Honestly, I think it's just to 
work on extending a hand backwards. If you can go out of your way to help somebody, not necessarily just in the vet career, kind of in everyday life, but um, even in the vet, vet field, if you know somebody who's trying to get where you are, um, just be willing to help. It's not a competition all the time. You don't know how they're struggling. It may not be a big deal to you, or it may just be one more thing for you to do on your already busy schedule, but it could truly mean the world to that person. Um, I know me personally, I was a first-generation college student, and a lot of this process was done by myself, done in confusion, <laughs> done with anxiety, um, but just the help of others without that, like I wouldn't have got here. It, it truly means the world to those who don't have the network, don't have the connections, don't have the know-how. Um, so just if you can extend a hand backwards and help somebody else, just kind of elevate them, do it. <laughs> well, if you're still listening out there, then that's your assignment is to mean the world to somebody. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, Justice. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.